You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, all right. The chicken gun has a 60-foot barrel, putting it solidly in the class of an artillery piece. While a four-pound chicken hurtling in excess of 400 miles per hour is a lethal projectile, the intent is not to kill. On the contrary, the chicken gun was designed to keep people alive. The carcasses are fired at jets, standing empty or occupied by simulated crew to test their ability to withstand what the Air Force and the aviation industry with signature-clipped machismo call bird strike. The chickens are stunt doubles for geese, gulls, ducks, and the rest of the collective bird mass that 3,000 or so times a year collide with Air Force jets, costing $50 million to $80 million in damage and, once every few years, the lives of the people on board. As a bird to represent all birds, the chicken is an unusual choice in that it doesn't fly. It does not strike a jet in the manner in which a mallard or goose strikes a jet, wings outstretched, legs trailing long. It hits it like a flung grocery item. Domestic chickens are, furthermore, denser than birds that fly or float around in wetlands. At 0.92 grams per centimeter cubed, the average body density of Gallus gallus domesticus is a third again that of a herring gull or a Canada goose. Nonetheless, the chicken was the standard material approved by the U.S. Department of Defense for testing jet canopy windows. Not only are chickens easier to obtain and standardize, but they serve as a sort of worst-case scenario. <laughs> Mary Roach is the author of Stiff, Spook, Bonk, Packing for Mars, and Gulp. Her new book is a Grunt. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure. This is a book about military science, and there's a lot of kinds of military science. I mean, that's a big field, but you narrowed it down. Talk about your uh, prioritization for narrowing it down. What, what, how exactly did you decide what you wanted to research? Well, I came to the book in kind of an unusual manner. I don't have, uh, I don't know anyone in the military. I don't really have any experience with military science. But I was covering in India the world's hottest chili pepper and a, um, a contest where people would eat these incredibly hot chili peppers. Anyway, in the, in the process of reporting that, somebody said, oh, you know, the Indian military made a non-lethal weapon out of these chili peppers. And so I thought, well, I need to report this. So I went over to, I made my way to the science arm of the Indian Defense Ministry and said, I, I, I just wanted to talk to you about the chili pepper. Anyway, so I'm there. And while I'm there uh, talking to these folks at the, who do science for the Indian Defense Ministry, they, you know, turns out they were working on a leech repellent. And they were, and I said, really? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, how do you test that? He said, well, it is, it is monsoon season. The rivers are high, and we go, and we put one leg, and we put something else on the other, and we are wading into the river, and the leeches come, and we are seeing, you know, so, I, and I thought, well, my God, military science is really not what I thought it was. It's a lot broader, more esoteric, more roachable. 
<laughs> and so that's how that's how it got started. And I thought I'd be covering things in India, and uh, I got nowhere by fax, by email, by phone call. I could not get uh, anybody to say, yeah, sure, you can come on down to the lab and report. I mean, the chili pepper business had happened a long time ago, and they were fine talking about it. But, they were, but that, it was actually very difficult to get any kind of access at all in India. Uh, but I uh, pursued it here in a very tentative way in the United States. And it turned out um, folks in the US military were quite surprisingly open to uh, inviting me into places and having these conversations. <laughs> so that's, that's how it happened. It happened with very hot chili peppers. <laughs> I always think of leeches. I always think you could have like leeches as pets and have family feeding hour where before you eat dinner, you'd all put your fingers in the leech bowl and they'd let the leeches be off. You know, I met uh, when I went to the Mütter Museum the last time. Um, I got to go to the basement where the offices are and the really cool stuff. And the director, and his name is, I'm ashamed to say, escaping me now. But they were doing, they'd been doing a Civil War. Well, was it Civil War? No, it was a, basically a, leech, a medical leech exhibit, and they uh, had some leeches there. Uh, I think it was they'd named them after is it William Harvey, the guy who discovered human circulation. <laughs> so one was William, and one was Harvey. And they, the guy had just, he had the leech on his arm and he had just finished feeding the leech. And they, you know, they was like his pet, you know, and they let me hold, I have this photograph of me with either Willie or more Harvey, I'm not sure uh, which, which one. And uh, they, they were almost kind of cute in a way. I, I think in this book, it's very interesting because this book, you unleash your wonderful sense of humor and your wonderful ability to write humor, but you also modulate the tone too because you, when you're talking about war and you're talking about human casualties, there's some poignancy to this. And I'd like you to, how did you um, manage that? I th think you did a very good job of doing that. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I don't really know how well I managed it. I'm just operating on uh, a sense of, knowing that I have to be me, but also knowing that it's sensitive and, and that people who've served as in the military will be reading this book. And, and mm -hmm. just in general, it, yeah, uh, it's, it, it, there, you can't just spray humor willy-nilly everywhere. It's not appropriate. And you don't, you know, there, there's, there's certainly whole, whole sections where I'm not laughing and I don't have no inclination toward making it funny or, or finding a way to laugh. Uh, so, I think what I did, um, I knew that I could. There were a couple chapter historical chapters mm -hmm. uh, that dealt with um, shark repellent in the, in World War II. The the attempts to make make a shark and test a shark repellent, which went off, veered off into the comic. Uh, the OSS was involved, which is the um, precursor to the CIA, and I had the correspondence files. And so that I mean, they, because it happened long ago, and because so few service members were dealing with sharks, and even if they ditched from a plane or their ship went down, um, sharks were really not a big, was, there was a tremendous amount of paranoia, but it really wasn't a, a situation where a lot of people were being killed by sharks. There was just a lot, a, a lot of ver, very funny sort of uh, discussions and testing going on. So I brought in a couple of chapters that don't you, you you could easily make the criticism that you know these aren't they don't quite fit in this book, but I liked them and I liked the fact that there was a bit of levity. Um, one was the shark repellent, the other was this, it has to do with um, 
basically stink bombs, although it wasn't a bomb. <laughs> so uh, there, using this historical material was a way to um, to do that. And again, and a, and a lot. Sometimes the humor in this book comes from me being a clueless, bumbling outsider in a situation that's very foreign and not knowing what to do, and and just the juxtaposition of war and the military with with me you know it just it does, it's just a kind of a funny combination inherently so some of that humor comes from that but uh it, you know it it was definitely a a challenge or just something that I knew you know best to to tread cautiously and respectfully no no such uh requirements when you're talking about the turkey gun <laughs> <laughs> no, chicken the chicken gun. Yeah, 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 the chicken gun. I love the chicken gun. Just the, just to say chicken gun is such a treat. The chicken gun. <laughs> and and it's interesting too that there that the sparrows are are really dangerous too. The what, the sparrow bullet as they called it. Yeah, the sparrow strike. The feathered bullet phenomenon. Yeah. Yes, we're in a we're in a a small bird hitting a a windscreen at, at a high velocity can act sort of like a bullet and pierce the screen. So, so you know, you're thinking, oh, we need to plan for the big things, the turkey vultures and the Canada geese, when in mm-hmm. fact the smaller things can be just as deadly. And, and I, I, I used, I opened the book with the chicken gun just as a way of saying military science has wandered into areas you cannot even imagine. <laughs> and, and the things that people are thinking about when they're involved in military science are not necessarily, you know, how do we build a more lethal bomb or how do we, you know, it's not strategy, it's not always strategy and bullets and bombs, it's sometimes these very uh, unexpected, esoteric and and important things that that, that go on, like also the guy who, the guy who invented a tactile flyer's suit so that if you were blinded while flying a plane, this suit sensed whether you were upside down or right side up and and vibrated and told you which way, how you were oriented and how to save your life. And there's a photograph of this guy flying a little biplane blindfolded. He's got like blindfolded. Somebody had a camera on the wing on this biplane. I think it was a biplane. Anyway, you know, he, and it, but, but that's, you know, this is a, a really important, life-saving, amazing invention that this guy came up with and then tested upside down and blindfolded while flying a plane. <laughs> Clothing plays an important part in war that I had never realized. You, you think about it for a second. And one of the things you talk about in what to wear to war is that the GIs, they're conscious. They want to look good. They don't, it's not just, it's not just complete utilitarianism. Right. They want to look cool. Yeah, there are a couple of really interesting examples of that. You know, when you talk about protective gear, um, protective gear can be tends to be you know, heavy, clammy, uncomfortable. Not necessarily, you know, it's, you have a tendency to want to take it off anyway. <laughs> right. So if you look awful and you you know it's affecting morale too. I mean, you, you just as a designer of protective gear, and I spoke to a woman who is a fa- she has a fashion design background, but she works at Natick Labs. Um, on designing different things, including protective gear. And, and she was saying yeah, it's important that it look kind of cool because you don't want to give soldiers another reason to take it off and stuff it under the seat. You know, that you want them to, you want to give them every possible reason to wear it. What is the upshot knothole? 
That's oh, what a great term. Upshot knothole. Yeah, wasn't that where did that that upsh, operation upshot knothole? And I, I don't know where the how they chose that name, but upsh, operation upshot knothole was uh, this was during the the uh, that era of um, atomic bomb, not not just testing the bomb, but testing the effects of an, an atomic bomb on buildings, on bomb shelters, on trees. On, so they would, they were, there were a number of detonations, experimental detonations that went on on the Nevada Proving Ground. And one, opera, one of these series had to do, uh, one of the things they were testing was protective clothing. And that struck me, and it, this is, I don't know why it was called Operation Upshot Knothole. <laughs> Upshot Knothole. What a great term. <laughs> I know, Operation Upshot Knothole. I don't know where the, the, the operation, I, mean, I thought of actually doing a, a footnote on, you know, how do they come up with the names of these operations, but I never got there. So, you know, I'll, someday I'll, I'll answer that question. But Operation Upshot Knothole, yeah, they, they took the, you know, they tested different, um, fabrics and combinations of layers of fabrics uh, and made ensembles is the word <laughs> they actually use um, for pigs because pig skin and human skin react similarly. They have similar, they react similar to extreme heat and they burn in a similar way. And so, the, and the pigs were completely anesthetized, uh, I should point out, but Anyway, just it, it it was first of all I thought well how would it's like it, it seemed you know if there's a nuclear explosion going off that close to you your outfit is probably the least of your concerns you know like some of the creatures were actually um, blown apart so yeah but the, and the weird thing is that the 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 study you know this is the surrealness of war the study was saying. Um, incredibly, there were no thermal burns underneath certain, you know, such and such percent. So, so the uniforms had in fact protected these creatures from thermal burn to the skin. Meanwhile, though, they end up in six pieces. So, you know, the fact that their uniform, anyway, it, it was a very uh, like so much of what went on in that era, so surreal and so Doctor Strange love. Uh, yeah, a movie that will haunt us forever. Yeah, I think. yeah. Uh, I never knew that the, a sniper zipper was so important, such a critical part of the sniper wears. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, this woman, the, the Annette Lafleur, the fashion designer at Natick, was taught. She was showing me a sniper top. Mm -hmm. She used the word top. I love that. It's like, <laughs> so it was top, uh, and it was on a dress form. And the dress form, like as a dress form, as like like all dress forms, uh, you know, a tra tailor's dummy. It doesn't have a head, so the whole thing makes you know. It's even, you know, like it's like someone else, someone else's sniper got to this sniper first because he doesn't have a head. I didn't say that, but well, I was thinking that. But so okay, so a zipper. Yeah. All right. If your if your job your career um, requires you to lie on your belly for long periods of time waiting to shoot someone, uh, then you, if you have buttons or zippers going down the front of your top, mm -hmm. that's uncomfortable. It's like lying on pebbles. So uh, she had designed, because of this, she designed a top, a sniper top with a, a side closure. So the closure would not be down the front, it would be oh, on the side. Oh, yeah. Because you could, you might say, okay, how about Velcro? But Velcro is very noisy. And so um, if you're in any kind of a stealth operation, you don't want Velcro because it goes. Right. 
And then everybody's like, wait, what was that? Oh, there's somebody over there. So, so I just, the fact that you have to have all these, you know, contingencies and these what ifs and, and all these, these things that have to be considered when designing a garment was all kind of fascinating to uh, me. I thought too, it was interesting how uh, Lafleur was so considered what she was doing. It was very much fashion. She was not, she was thinking about the war, but also mm-hmm. just about the looks, the fashion, that whole aspect of the operation. And this goes down to the camo. And there were lots of problems with camo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Camouflage is, yeah, it, it, it well, there was, there was a, um, yeah, the, the the fashion element of it was interesting in that the uh, camouflage became so popular in mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Everybody was wearing camo. It's kind of like the, you just like you could buy underwear, you could buy golf cleats, you could buy baby onesies. <laughs> Everything comes in camo. It was huge. Baby onesies in camo. In camo, oh, yeah. Wow. They, they they're all on the internet, and at a certain point, people in the navy who don't wear camo because they're not having to blend in with woodlands or brush or desert scrub they're at sea and they're like but hey we want to we want to wear camo too so there's they're the actual working the day-to-day working uniform for the u.s navy is a blue camo print and i thought i remember saying to this um commander in the navy I'm like what well am i missing something here like why yeah he's like he looks down at his trousers and he's like yeah, that's so if you fall overboard, no one can see you. <laughs> like, but anyway, so they, they, so camo, yeah, camo is an interesting combination of fashion and hipness, but also, I mean, it started out as a very utilitarian pattern. And it wasn't just for clothing. You'd put it, you'd drape it over Jeeps and things to, to try to keep them invisible to someone flying overhead. I mean, camo is a, it's a functional textile, but it is also now super hip. There was a problem with the camo where they tried to standardize it, and they oh, had to recall yeah. a whole bunch of it and there was, redo it. Well, there was a there was an attempt to because the wars have uh, been fought in different terrains. There's 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 you know World War Two. You're in like the, the woods, uh, and and then uh, for the past uh, several conflicts, there's we've been in desert terrain, and so the woodland camo didn't really work. And then there. There's urban terrain as well. So the, the, the thought was rather than having all these different patterns, which is expensive to produce you know, lots of different patterns and whole lines of clothing and gear, they thought, let's find a, a universal pattern, something that will work in the woods, in the desert, and in an urban environment. Uh, and so Natick, the, 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 the hardworking uh, folks over at Natick Labs, where they have a camouflage test facility, they said, all right, well, let's try to figure this out. You want us to come up with one thing that will fit and work everywhere? And they came up with a bunch of different patterns. And these were, I think it was 13 patterns, and they sent them out um, to be tested uh, among troops. And um, before any of the informa- any of the data came back, some very high-ranking uh, general picked, just went ahead and picked one, not one of the 13 being tested, essentially because he liked it, <laughs> is the story that I heard. And, um, and it didn't work well. And, and then it, you know, and it, it, they, they, had, they had to uh, re- come up with something that actually worked because it wasn't, it wasn't good for, um, what, for Afghanistan and it wasn't, it wasn't protecting troops. So, uh, I, and now there's, uh, I mean, I, yeah. Can you really have one camouflage pattern that works everywhere? I don't know, but that was the goal. 
this is the only book where I think I will ever encounter the phrase blast boxers. Yeah. <laughs> blast boxers, combat diapers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're uh, blast boxers. That was an interesting chapter in the world of military underwear. There are some, inter- there also the red orange underwear is another oh, interesting yes. chapter. Oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Special yeah. red orange underwear. Yes. The public Superman. Af- <laughs> the public affairs officer, <laughs> uh, David Aceta at Natick. Uh, 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 believes that I have an underwear fetish because I I would I kept writing to him various things that came up about undergarments and he's like what's with you in underwear but any, but anyway um, blast boxers yeah well with with an IED explosion uh, if you are anywhere nearby one of the things that happens is is you know this is a buried explosive and so a lot of dirt and debris is getting blasted at very high speed to you and you are kind of getting you first of all you depending on where you are you can you either like get this horrible situation where uh the now let me let me back up what what can happen the dirt and debris that's being blasted is being you know sort of forced into your skin and the dirt and debris has a lot of bacteria so there's tremendous in addition to the the tissue damage and the bone damage that you would have from being near an ied you're having uh, a lot of um, infection mm-hmm. from the dirt and debris that's being blasted deeply into your skin and the, the tissue, sometimes the tissue below the skin. And uh, blast boxers were, was an effort to create a garment that would couldn't protect you from, I mean, if, it's, you're a, if an IED can blow your leg off, it's also going to, you know, you're not, gonna, you're not, you have to, you don't have to worry about Blast boxes. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but it does. It, it's very helpful in in blocking that dirt and debris. Mm-hmm. So you can take Kevlar or any of the newer incarnations, Spectra. I think Dyneema. These are um, these are garments that you could you could have something as lightweight as underwear and still get some protection from this airborne high flying fast speed dirt and debris. So that that was helpful in you know in preventing infections and that sort of thing it's it's not bomb proof i mean some of the marketing was leading soldiers to believe this is you know that you could put this magic underwear on and you'd never have an injury to your junk uh, which was which was you know providing some measure of psychological comfort but it was uh, you know a false bill of goods you you if you, there's ieds that can blow a vehicle three times over in the air that's you know probably if they can if it, if it's that powerful it's not bomb-proof. It is not. There's no such thing as bomb-proof underwear, but there is underwear that can protect you from that blast of... The sandblasting. Uh, the effect. sandblasting and the enabling bacteria to make their way deep into your body. It's a world of magic underwear. <laughs> Tell us about the magic red underwear. That's an interesting oh, anecdote. Oh, that was a... Yeah, that was uh, around, around 19... Oh, what was that? It was around... It was the early 1900s. So mm-hmm. there was this fad for red clothing hats in particular. The, 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 I think it was the, the British in India were wearing, they had ha- these red hats that supposedly were, were enabling you to withstand heat better, that it, it had a protective effect. I don't know w- what the thinking was, why red would make you better able to do it. You kind of exert yourself in ex- extremely hot weather and 
fare better. But th this was out there in the medical literature, and so someone in the military made a bunch of um, red orange underwear, and it's there's a whole paper, the, you know, on the the effects of red orange underwear, and these poor guys, like this un this underwear arrived. First of all, um, they'd made it out of heavy dungaree cotton. Uh, so it's very, very hot and heavy. Not just, I mean, that, uh, not something that you want your underwear to be made out of. Also, the red was not color fast, so it was running. And they, there were some of the hats, and the hats would dribble the red down the, onto their faces. And uh, it, it was very uncomfortable. Nobody felt better. They felt embarrassed because they were, for, and, and it quickly stopped being red. It was like a dirty brown, and then a... <laughs> <laughs> kind of a cream color, so it didn't hold up in the laundry. Half of them didn't fit; they were too tight. Anyway, it was a um, a pretty entertaining little chapter in military uniform history. <laughs> oh, uh, I look at my notes and I see another phrase here: toilet palsy. Oh, your toilet palsy! <laughs> I just that's one of those things I. Uh, it, I don't know why I even left that in the book, but um, I was sitting in a I was sitting in a striker armored personnel carrier at Aberdeen Proving Ground with a couple of people who are working on ways to make a vehicle safer. In the case that you you run an underbody blast, you run over a bomb, this thing goes off right under the vehicle. Uh, how can you make a vehicle safe? Because you can't just keep adding layers of armor because at a certain point it's too heavy to move it's too heavy to ship etc anyway so we're we were sitting and having a conversation and and one of the things they've done is that uh, the seats are not bolted to the floor so if the blast comes up you know the seats are sort of on a shock absorber they they're kind of almost floating but the the trick there is that you've got to keep your feet you can't put your feet down on the floor. You got to put it on the seat across from you. Otherwise, it defeats the whole purpose. And it's un and and he was saying it's uncomfortable to have your feet up like that for a long time. He said, you know, you get, you know, toilet palsy. And I'm like, so wait, went back up. What? You know, when you're reading on the toilet too long and your leg starts to. Anyway, so and I left that in just because I don't know. I couldn't take out the words toilet palsy now that they'd enter my brain. I had to. I had to share them. Had well, you ever heard of toilet palsy? I have never heard of toilet palsy, but it, <laughs> like I your leg I'm, starts to shake or, or go numb, I guess. I, that has never I've never experienced that and I'm a guy who reads books. I've I've been <laughs> and the woman I was sitting with this uh, woman Nicole Brockoff who works for the Pentagon on this project and she 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 you know I stopped him and was like what what is she she said this it's got to be a guy thing. Like like <laughs> sitting on the toilet reading. I don't I don't know. Um, I, I thought that, uh, it was, I, the part about, uh, why a man was really interesting. I mean, some of the stuff that, that you've uncovered is, mm -hmm. is fascinating. So t tell yeah. us, what is why a man? Well, first of all, it's actually pronounced we a man, like, we -a -man. like the little guy on Jackass. Uh, okay. Is, yeah. Although, um, no one there seemed to have heard of the, the Jackass uh, Series they've never not seen Jackass. That's really bizarre because I mean I know. they practically live it in some ways. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. They they hadn't. It wasn't intent. I thought it was an intentional play on We a Man, the little guy in the Jackass movies. But in fact, it's not. It stands for Warrior Injury Assessment Mannequin. It's a crash test dummy for underbody blast, and and it, they print They they call it We a Man. And I I when I brought it up, I could see the researcher just going, Oh God. 
<laughs> do I have to answer this question again? It's like, you know, we made this choice and we have to live with it. Yeah, right, the little guy and jackass, yeah. But anyway, we a man, um, setting aside the man, the little man and jackass, um, the, it, it's, um, it's interesting because the, the, in designing a crash test dummy, they're having to go back and do the same kinds of things that the automotive industry did back in the 60s when they first started creating crash test dummies. Then, uh, in order to make the dummy, you know, dummies are good at measuring force and strain and things like that that you expose them to, but to then make that information, make those measurements meaningful, you have to know which measurement, which amount of force corresponds to what injury. Is that a minor injury or a fatal injury? And so they have to do work with, they work with cadavers to sort of systematically go through. And they have, um, at Aberdeen Proving Ground, they've got a blast rig and they set off C4 underneath and there are cadavers in seats, sort of a, um, a simulated vehicle interior. And so the blast goes off, there's a little jolt to the cadaver and it looks like nothing. It looks like they took a speed bump too fast until you slow it down and you, I mean, it's filmed in ultra high speed. So when you watch it, you can- It's 10,000 frames a second or something? Yeah, 10,000 frames Amazing. per second. Yeah. So yeah, so then you can, you can watch it in ultra slow motion and it almost looks like modern dance. It doesn't look brutal or violent. It looks sort of graceful, but, but what's going on is these different kinds of tissue are being very, you know, asked to react to this force that's happening so fast and they can't react that quickly. If it happened very slowly, if a bomb went off really slowly, you know, you probably would be kind of a gentle motion that you could probably survive and you wouldn't have the tissue stretched so fast that it breaks or strains. Um, but unfortunately it does happen in a split second. So um, they're trying to um, d get all that information about what does this amount of blast do to the body. So now when you, you have a dummy that, that has that information programmed into it, you can put it into a prototype for a mine-resistant vehicle and see whether or not, in fact, it would keep people alive. What kind of injury would would result? I mean, would the, would this be a fatal injury? Would it be a minor injury? Is it something that's going to affect the soldier for the rest of his or her life? Um, you know, because the, the Pentagon had been asked to review a bunch of prototype mine-resistant vehicles, and, and they just didn't have the equipment to do it. They, they could use crash test dummies, but those don't work because the blast, when you're in a car crash, you're not being hit from below. Mm -hmm. So um, the way it affects the body is completely different. You know, in a car, it's uh, you're being thrown forward or back, you know, the, or, or side to side. You know, a T-bone crash, you, your head's being thrown sideways very quickly. And none of that, ha none of that is the, the force that happens in an underbody blast. That's really just like shoving your your feet up in your spine, up into your hips, up into your spine. And so you get a lot of uh, injury to the bottom of the foot, the lower leg, the back, uh, because this force is just smacking you from below. So um, the, the dummy had to be completely, you know, just, it's just a different, completely different crash test dummy. So that's what they've been working on. And, and that was, uh, uh, it was fascinating. So they used the, they used the cadavers to calibrate what the the dummies exactly exactly the information they get from the the controlled blasts under the cadavers i mean then cadavers are in seats and they're way above i mean it's it's not like they're sitting on the explosive material mm -hmm. um 
it's supposed to mimic what happens inside a armored personnel carrier. So, so yeah, the information they get from the cadavers will then inform this mannequin, this dummy, that they'll then be able to put into a prototype vehicle and set off the same kinds of explosions underneath and see, you know, what is the damage, what, what is registering on the dummy. And, that, and now they know, what does that mean? Is this a mm -hmm. fatal injury or is this a, is this my, a minor injury? You know, what, what are we dealing with here? Who knew that the Dient were, Vort was more deadly than <laughs> Afghanistan? And... Uh, Dient, yeah, my husband went to. This is how Dient Wart ended up in this book. Um, I, uh, my husband came back from a party in L.A. An event, a bunch of stuff going. I forget the name of it, but anyway, Dient Wart was performing, and he he described this wall of sound. He said it was it was the loudest sound he could. It seemed like it was louder than a jet engine and had to be in the neighborhood of 120 decibels. And that kind of exposure, and I was at that time writing a chapter about extreme noise in the military and hearing damage and the whole conundrum of if you protect your ears, you then can't hear important information like, hey, duck, <laughs> look out, someone's over there. Uh, you can't, the communications are compromised and most people in the military, you know, there's the choices between preserving your hearing and preserving your life. You're going to take out your earplugs or take off your, you know, ear cuffs. So, so it's, it's a, it's kind of a conundrum. But anyway, in the middle of all that, my husband, Ed was, um, at a DeAntwort concert. And I just remember thinking, you know, everybody who went to that concert has lost some hearing now. If wow. you stay for, well, cause it's all time dependent, you know, if you, right. You know, if you've got, uh, say, 85 decibels, which is like a chainsaw or something, um, no, 85 is just, is, is, is not scratch that, 115 would be like a chainsaw, and you've got about a minute before you start to be susceptible to some hearing damage. A minute at 115, okay? Uh, 85 decibels, which is just kind of like loud restaurant, or uh, you, you could be there eight hours and, and, and you'd probably be okay. But when you go past eight hours, then you start to look at risk to hearing. Uh, so these folks are two hours at a DeAntwort concert without earplugs. They, they're doing some damage. <laughs> so I don't know. That's how DeAntwort. Nothing against DeAntwort. I actually like DeAntwort. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I remember I went to a survival research labs event Ooh, at, yeah. the, at the Docklands. It was probably about twenty mm -hmm. years ago, and they and they had uh, they handed out hearing protection for everybody because they had a V two rocket. One of my friends was a was a fellow who would go, "Oh, Rick, 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 we've got a real V two rocket. It's really, really loud." Oh God, it was really, really loud. Yeah, yeah, and some of the, yeah, some of this uh, like just an M sixteen, which is a Military rifle that's used a lot. That's sure. a, a, uh, 160 decibels, but it's a it's it's wow. a very you know it's a very it's a limited exposure, but it's loud enough that just a, in the span of a gunshot, you could do damage. So mm. you sh you know you really should be wearing hearing protection on anybody on a firing or a shooting range. They are usually wearing it, but in combat, you know, also stuff happens in the military. You're driving for six hours and nothing happens, and all of a sudden chaos breaks out and people are, you know, people are firing, you know, like, or a bomb goes off. I mean, you're not, you, you can't anticipate when you're going to need the protection. Sure. So the, you have two choices. You leave it on all the time and you risk not hearing important information and, uh, and no one does that. 
or you have some kind of device that enables you to communicate while you're protecting your ears. So that's sort of what they try to do. They have a, it's called TCAPS, a tactical communication and protection system. And that's a huge improvement. Anyway, so I think that everybody goes to Deantwort should invest in a set of yeah, TCAPs. Comrade, walk, and you can communicate with each yeah. other. You can actually have a conversation with the person that you went to the concert with, which normally you can't. I have to ask, you write about Stu Seagal Productions. Is he a relative of Steven Seagal, the action star? Not that I know of. Um, not that I know it's of. It's spelled the same. It it's seemed... spe- but I think, that's, I think Steven Seagal changed his name. I think oh. he changed his name. Stu Seagal, I don't know if Stu, if that's his born name or he changed it. But Steven Seagal, what I heard, and I don't know if this is true. I'm just mouthing off without knowing anything about Steven Seagal, but I heard he, he, he changed his name. He was Seagull and he changed it. Oh, well, it seems yeah. so appropriate because uh, uh, what Stu Seagal does, and really fascinating. This is, yeah. a, who knew? Yeah, yeah. Stu Seagal was a, he started out, well, he's, he's produced and directed action films, among other films. And he, uh, at a certain point, it was after, he said, he described it as after 9-11 when the, the appetite for violent action films had kind of dimmed and, and we were in kind of a national mood for less violence. So he kind of repurposed his talents for gore and mayhem and he created the, using his studios, he's got this elaborate spread of studios in, uh, in uh, near San Diego, to do these hyper-realistic, and that is a trademark term, hyper-realistic scenarios, tactical scenarios of, uh, say you're in Afghanistan and all of a sudden people start shooting and someone's hit and you're the medic or the Navy corpsman, who those guys do the medical care for the Marines. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a way to train them to kind of deal with the stress and mayhem and um, gore that they're going to be exposed to. Because not only are you exposed to it, and that's scary and upsetting, but you have to be performing very specific medical tasks like um, putting on, uh, doing a needle decompression, like putting a needle into someone's chest, putting it in the right place, mm-hmm. or... Um, one of those, it's like an IV, but it goes into the bone. I mean, they're, they're tricky things. They're cutting a new airway. And they're tricky things to do when you're relaxed. But you can imagine if somebody's screaming and, and weapons are going off. And, and when somebody's bleeding out, when somebody's bleeding, hemorrhaging, they've got maybe two minutes for you mm-hmm. to do your job. So it's tremendously stressful. So the idea is you can bring these trainees in and expose them at least to the the chaos and the sounds and the gore. So that's what they do, and they do it to to an amazing degree. I mean, they even bring in uh, amputees, and they have them set up with a silicone gore sleeve that they put over the stump, and they've got a backpack with stage blood, their own stage blood. I mean, yeah, the strategic ops sells the stage. They've got their own line of... of, um, Stage blood and anything, ever the other things. Anyway, that goes into kind of a camel pack with a pump, so that so that the stump is like spraying blood very realistically. You know, it's pooling on the floor, and you get this this kid who's coming in and has to deal with that, has to place a tourniquet, place it properly, and it's even set up so that there's somebody with a remote control operating the bleeding, and so it's set up so that if you don't place it right and you don't do it right, it keeps on bleeding, wow. and it bleeds out, and the person dies. So quote unquote dies. So, I mean, it's the, the level of detail that they take it to is pretty impressive. I mean, I, I don't, 
I don't know that there's been a study looking at these people who've had this training or haven't had this training, how does it affect them in order in, in terms of how well they do their job or whether they're they end up with PTSD. I don't think you can really do that because each scenario is different, each person is different. But anyway, it it well, you call it can't it a, hurt anything. You I mean, call it, it a stress inoculation, which I think is a really interesting term, and you explain your own stress inoculation too. Right, right, yeah, they, yeah. They call it they like or an emotional vaccine, mm -hmm. as, as in if we give you a small dose of this before you go, will it prepare you? Will you be somewhat immune when it really happens? When the real deal happens? And uh, I, the only thing I could relate it to is I, I once did a. Um, a story on killer bees. I was down on the border with Mexico and Texas, and the, the bees were making their way north into this country, so there was a lot of uh, attention paid at that time to killer bees. And I went out with a, a group of entomologists who were studying killer bees, and we there was a farm with this huge swarm in a 50-gallon drum. They had taken up residence, this big old swarm of um, killer honeybees. And it, I mean, they're honeybees. They, they're more aggressive. That's why they're called killer. And I went in with the researchers and I wore a, a bee net that I hadn't affixed properly <laughs> and some of the bees got inside my f net my face net and I had to keep smashing myself in the face to kill the bees I got stung anyway it was a, a, a fairly um you know it's, it's just a bee sting it's not like it's killer venom it's just that those bees are more aggressive but anyway I went through that and it was kind of scary and then later in the day I noticed we were at a a farm where they were just regular honeybees. They weren't Africanized. They weren't quote-unquote killer bees. They were regular honeybees. They looked the same, but they weren't as aggressive. And we were having a conversation, and I noticed that there were some of the bees that were crawling on my arm, and I didn't care at all. And I'm the, you know, bef not the kind of person up until that point who could have dealt with that easily. I would have been like, ah, that's a bee, you know, like, get it off, and I would have been like, but I, I was completely unconcerned. I looked down at this bee walking around in my arm like, yeah, big deal. It's just a regular honeybee. So I, I, I had very effectively, but that's, it's the opposite, though. You know, would an experience with a regular honeybee prepare you for the killer bees? See, that's the, that's the mm -hmm. difference. Well, now you're prepared for the killer bees that are right around the corner. <laughs> no, <laughs> yes, I'm prepared for the, the gigantic ones that fire guns, yeah. Now, uh, when you, you talk about the problems with sweat, and I used to work at a blood factory where we processed mm -hmm. human plasma, mm -hmm. and I never knew that, that plasma was what we sweat. I didn't either. I had no clue. No, I had no clue that, that, that that's that you've got to you got to manufacture your own sweat. You have to <laughs> uh, your body when you st when it starts to get really hot, your, I mean, your body needs to keep itself in the proper range. It's like, you know, a computer system or something. It doesn't want to run in. It doesn't like to run when it's too hot. It doesn't run as well. And so your body just takes it upon itself to cool itself. And the way it does that is it redirects more uh, of your blood to the, to the skin. And then it, the sweat glands um, take plasma, which is the colorless, the, the clear um, portion of the blood, and uh, release that onto the, that plasma onto the skin, and then it, it vaporizes. The, the heat goes off, goes away from the body in the form of vapor, and thereby cooling you. And I had no clue. I had no idea that um, that that's where sweat comes from. 
that it's that it comes from plasma and and, and all and, and also the whole idea of your body like sh- shunting your blood from one you know one place to another like okay we need it on the skin <laughs> and if you're working out your body's going like geez we need it in the muscles and now we got to give some to the blood I mean to the to the skin to cool this person and and you can quickly overload the system if it's very very hot and you're working hard there's just not enough blood to go around. And that's when you start to have uh, heat injuries and even heat stroke. And that happens a lot, as you can imagine, in the Middle East, uh, when you're wearing body armor and you're carrying a heavy, heavy load and you're trying to, and you may have to run and exert yourself and you're stressed out. Mm. So, um, yeah, you need, you, 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 there's not enough to go around. There's not <laughs> enough of that miraculous body fluid. Uh, what is the thing in Doctor Strange Love? Don't they keep talking about the bodily fluids? Oh yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's uh, George uh, C. Scott. The precious we must preserve the our precious, precious bodily, bodily fluid. fluids. I kept thinking about that because <laughs> you know that, that that's it, yeah. Your body, you, your different parts of your body are like fighting each other other over these precious bodily fluids. <laughs> we need them. No, we need them. It's George C. Scott, and we must not allow a mine shaft gap. <laughs> My favorite line from that one. Uh, there's a probe. <laughs> oh, yes. So, and you had a mother and son team, so talk about... The <laughs> oh, yeah. For, this is in the, in the sweat chapter, in the heat stroke. What they were the doing... The cookbox. Yeah, the cookbox. Um, the researcher, Diana Purvis, her son is an uh, Army Ranger instructor and has uh, him experienced in both Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe, both definitely in Iraq. Uh, the extremes of temperature and um exertion and body you know wearing body armor so he has she had recruited him to uh be part of this experiment they were trying to figure out uh, this is um the consortium for health and military performance Mm -hmm. they were concerned with levels of not only of heat stroke but another rhabdomyolysis which we don't have to get into here but it's an it's another uh, f- sometimes fatal consequence of that competition for precious bodily fluids. So anyway, sh- uh, yeah, she ha- her son was recruiting recruited to uh, take part in this th- um, uh, research that involved going into the cookbox and they can jack the timber. They can pretty much you know create the humidity and heat that they want. And um, they were on a treadmill on a slight incline uh, in 100 degree heat, and I was in there too. And um, we were at one point I had to put on a pack and it was just, they were, I, I only made it seven minutes and uh, it because uh, and I, I would have you know if, if I had kept going I would quickly have uh, been in the danger zone mm-hmm. partly uh, also you, you um, your body adapts to heat you know if you if you go over to Afghanistan you you know within a, f- a few days you will start to be someone who sweats rapidly and copiously and that does, and yeah, so I thought, because I saw uh, her son, Josh, started sweating right away, and I was feeling like, <laughs> I'm not even sweating. And in <laughs> fact, what that means is that uh, my body is completely non-acclimated to heat. I mean, it, um, it, it's, a, it's a failure on my, my body's like, is it, is it hot in here? You do. God, I should, I should really like a popsicle right now. Yeah, whereas his body's like, hold on, it's hot, let's cool this thing down. So... Um, anyway, but yes, there, there was a rectal probe, which is just a way of measuring your core temperature. <laughs> and a rectal probe, I have to say, it's a very, it's, it's attached, you're attached by a tether to this 
it's almost like a brick. It's a it's a little computerized system that is taking all the data. Uh, but if you're having a conversation with the probe in and the heavy brick-like computer part is on the counter and you walk away, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very uh, awkward, embarrassing. It's like, oh, um, so I, I need some help here. <laughs> well, let's talk about when I, my son was about 13, my youngest son, was, he's about 13 or 14, he had to do a project on a country in the world, and he chose Djibouti. Oh, he did? Yes. Wow. So I know a little bit about Djibouti. I know how to say it, at least. And uh, but and I think he might have even uh, mentioned Camp uh, Lemonnier. 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 Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I somehow I remember that from something else I've been talking to. So tell us about uh, Mark Riddle, Camp Lemonnier, and uh, the dysentery research they're doing there. Sure, yeah. Well, Camp Lemonnier, yes, you're right. It's in Djibouti. I had never, I don't think I'd ever really given any thought in my entire life to Djibouti. It's kind of an overlooked country. It's mm -hmm. right there. It's next to Ethiopia, across from Yemen, and also right close to Somalia. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of counterinsurgency stuff that goes on there. Somalia and Yemen being kind of hotbeds of... Oh, yeah, Yemen is... Uh, yeah. I, who did I speak to? Gregory Johnson about Yemen. Yeah, yeah. So Djibouti, there's a big um, U.S. military base there, and a lot of the special operations missions leave from there. And Mark Riddle is a diarrhea researcher, uh, for the, works for the Navy, and um, he was doing a project where uh, he's, they're, they're looking at a much faster treatment regimen. If you come down with severe diarrhea, uh, you could take this and be recovered with just one dose. Instead of th three doses over three days, it was mm -hmm. a one single dose regimen, which is good for two reasons. Uh, one of them, you do, there's less t if, there, if you're taking it less time, you're less likely to, um, bacteria, the resistant strains of bacteria are less likely to develop. You don't have enough time for, the, you know, to, for the mutation to happen and the, the ones that survive to go and reproduce, blah, 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 that, that whole scenario. Mm. The more time you give it, the more likely that's going to happen, and that's a bad situation. So, so it's you know one-day regimen makes sense for that reason, but also because just y y if you're a, a special operations team, and these are small teams, and they're going out and doing sometimes you know pretty life-or-death critical things. Let's say, I mean, let's say just because everyone's heard of this scenario, it's your job to go into a compound and take down Osama bin Laden. And you've been spending time, as these guys do, in uh, remote villages in, say, Somalia, Yemen, wherever you, wherever you are, and you're, e you're eating food that might not have been refrigerated. Mm -hmm. And you're drinking water that might not be safe, that's not been treated or filtered or whatever. Uh, and um, these guys get uh, diarrhea at, at about twice the rate of non-special operations. People who are on a base, you know, and even if even folks on base, it's something like 70% of them end up with diarrhea at some point. Really? Yeah. And I think it was 40%, 40%, they did, I think it was 2003 to four, the Mark's group looked at um, the incidence of diarrhea in in, um, in Iraq, and, they, and there uh, was 77% got it over the course of the year, 40% 40, 40 of them bad enough that they sought medical help, and 32% bad enough that they couldn't make it to a toilet on time. So anyway, if you're and you're in a special operations mission, you don't get to take time out to go sit on the john, you know, you, and you just have to keep going forward. And, um, and I had some really interesting conversations 
with a couple of these guys about that, and they've they live through that, and mm-hmm. it's it's very uh, un- unpleasant. Sounds it sounds somewhat traumatizing. I mean, and and. Uh complicates an already difficult job. It complicates an already difficult mission. That's exactly right, yeah. So if it was it was one of the more interesting conversations I've ever had, just because I don't spend a lot of time with people in special operations. They're mm. not, you know, they, they were there on the base, but they're in um, a restricted zone that's classified. So so the only time they, they kind of come out to eat is they don't have their own dining hall. So oh. you have so if you're going to have a conversation about diarrhea with one of these guys, you have to have it over dinner, <laughs> which complicates it even further. Uh, so you got to like ambush this guy. Who, you know, he's like, what do you want from me? Like what? Because I'm coming over with this public affairs guy and we're like, oh, hello, excuse me. <laughs> I'm hello. And, you know, he actually looked up and said, I'm leaving. And he's like picking up his tray, and we're going, wait, 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 but wait, but I wanted to, you know, I'm working on a book, and I have this chapter about diarrhea, but I'll you know, and uh, and he, but it was, <laughs> and it was as awkward as it was, it was, um, you know, I said, as he was trying to make his way to the door, I said, I, I this sounds, you know, it sounds like a really silly topic, diarrhea, and and he interrupted me, and he said, it's not, mm-hmm. and you're welcome to sit down, so. Uh, I think one of the interesting aspects of of all your books is uh, how you yourself enter them as a character. You create a really (laughs) vast gallery of really interesting people quickly, completely. We get to know some fascinating people in these books, especially you. (laughs) (laughs) uh, The goober with the tape recorder (laughs) inserting herself into people's daily lives and... and, uh, bringing up topics that most people don't want to talk about. <laughs> well, I think you do a good job of showing that that's a difficult, I mean, you're asking difficult questions of a very different type. I mean, we all know the prototypical hard-hitting journalists. I'm going to embarrass the heck out of you. You are also going to embarrass the heck out of us, just not in the way that everybody else is. Yeah, you know what makes it... And that's more that's yeah. palatable. I think it's it's charming. Well, it's um, it is uh, easier for me in that these topics that seem weird or, or inappropriate or difficult to us, the people that I'm approaching live in that world. Mm-hmm. So for someone someone who say is a, a sex researcher, mm-hmm. uh, to have a conversation about orgasm or erectile dysfunction or whatever it is for them it's like talking about tire rotation or what did you have for breakfast it's just not awkward or embarrassing that's what i so it's actually easier than you would think to um to broach these topics because it's this is the this is part of their life it's part of their existence you know for someone in special operations who's out in these remote villages in somalia or wherever um Diarrhea is a part of their life. So it's like, and and it, and it's a it's um it's a significant concern that it's going to happen. It's going to hit them right when they can't have it hit them. So it's 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 something that they're open to talking about. And uh, so it's it's interesting. It quickly transcends the awkwardness of the scenario and the topic and becomes mm-hmm. this really fascinating conversation. So uh, it, yeah, it, it, there's a yeah, it's a really interesting vibe to your books because they're very fascinating. And they're funny, and they're also sweet and charming. And you correctly predict in this book that um, there would be a penis transplant by the time we read the book. Just there, barely, yeah. Yeah, there has right. one. Yeah. Yes. 
So talk about the technology and your experiences researching this for this book. Sure, yeah. The, uh, the first penis, U.S., the first U.S. penis transplant happened a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, say the, within a month of when the book came out, Oddly, not the folks that I talked to at Johns Hopkins, but folks at uh, Mass General. Mm. Anyway, I was I was on the scene for um, some of the cadaver research because, of, of course, for any new surgical procedure, in particular something like a transplant, a lot of it has to be worked out with cadavers. In other words, like what what which veins and arteries are the most important to reconnect, and which can we skip, or which nerves need to be connected and um, well, nerves, you, know, you can't really uh, figure that one out with cadavers as well. But um, but anyway, I was there at Johns Hopkins when they were doing some research. They were actually, they didn't do the full run through, a mm. wet run as it's called. <laughs> they didn't do the whole thing. They um, but they went but they went through part of it, uh, and they were looking at perfusion, as in. Um, what section of skin and tissue does this artery feed? And, and they, they do that by, by hooking up um, the artery to a, an IV bag with blue fluid. And then, so oh. then they let it, they open mm-hmm. the stopcock and then the blue fluid flows in and you can see this kind of time-lapse bruise happening. This blue mm-hmm. cast comes over the skin. And, and that, you know, that was important for them to know, all right, this is an important artery because this feeds this whole area. And if you didn't, rec- if you didn't hook up this artery, You'd have necrosis in that area, and you'd, the skin would die. And there was a problem. The first penis transplant was done in China in 2006, mm-hmm. and there was necrosis, and it was it was cut off within two weeks because it, it didn't work. There were also some mysterious psychological issues that the Chinese surgeons didn't fully explain. They just said severe psychological issues. But in looking at the photographs, the U.S. surgeons thought that there was some necrosis, like that they hadn't attached all the arteries they needed to attach to feed blood to the whole, sec- the whole, because you don't just take the penis, you take the surrounding mm-hmm. uh, skin and tissue. So anyway, it was a kind of an, yeah, interesting morning there in the cadaver lab. A place you're quite at home with. It's like back home day. <laughs> it's for- old home day for Mary. <laughs> for Mary. Uh, yeah. I, I thought you did a really wonderful job at modulating your tone and handling the part about what happens when uh, combat soldiers are injured uh, in around or near their genitals. And I mm-hmm. think that that's, I think you did a, a fabulous job of writing about that. Talk about researching that and, I mean, talking to people yeah. about that. That's a... I mean, yeah. it, it makes sense that the, that would be the first question they'd ask. Right, yeah, after an explosion, mm-hmm. um, it, it, is my junk okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a question, it, it's, a, it's an area that doesn't get as much play as, say, some of the work with leg amputations, partly because there's been a, you know, a lot of technological advances in prosthetics, and also because just the sheer numbers, uh, genital reconstruction is so much less common. I mean, some mm-hmm. of the statistics are something like 300 um, serious genital urological injuries for something like 13,000 or 18,000 amputations. So there's just so much more, you know, because a bomb, you know, a, a bomb is going to, the worst dim, the worst damage is the furthest down, the foot. And as you go, and the bigger the bomb, of course, the higher up the damage. And for a long time, a bomb that was so big that it would injure, it would also injure all the way up the thigh to the crotch was likely to be a 
bomb that killed you. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a need for genital reconstruction. But now um, trauma care has gotten a lot better and bombs have gotten bigger. So now men are surviving to need this work. And mm -hmm. so there's been a lot of um, a lot of work going on. And that's the, also partly the impetus for looking into penis transplants. You ta spoke earlier about the stink bombs. <laughs> this, this is a, a yeah. prime roachable subject. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's interesting, it's history, but yet there is a, a, we, there's, they had a liquid. Ta tell us the recipe for stench soup. Yeah. Well, yeah, stench, well, stench soup is a, is a fairly modern, mm -hmm. uh, modern day version of uh, some, something that began in World War II. Um, uh, the World War II version was called Who Me? Uh, as in, I didn't <laughs> fart. You know, it was, it was supposed, the, the original idea was to create this very foul, fecal-smelling substance that could be either squirted or smeared on German and Japanese officers in occupied countries by, the res by resistance groups. And the idea was to hum humiliate and ostracize these people. So it's a very, it was like putting a cheap, subtle weapon into the hands of large groups of motivated citizens. Mm -hmm. so, and the OSS came up with this idea. Stanley Lovell, the director of research, had this idea. And a, I, I had the file, the OSS file, in the archives at the National Archives. Your first and secret records. document. It was my first, yes. It, it had been declassified <laughs> at some point, but, they, but it's still, they all, they all said secret stamped all over them. And so it was very exciting for me to, to be looking through secret documents, particularly secret documents on something like a, a, a stink paste. Uh, so that was, uh, that was the, um, the historical component. And then stench soup is a more recent, and it's a, a more recent concoction, and it's not for the same purpose. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a non-lethal weapon, and the idea would be to clear a room, to make a smell so vile and so intolerable and horrible that no one would come into that room and anybody in it would leave. So it was like clearing terrain, and or and or breaking up a mob, you know, dispersing a mob. So there, it was a, it, it had completely different goal. But 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 some of the um, research was uh, similar in that it needed to be tested and uh, yeah. So I got two soup. pugs who can handle that room clearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Effect. Your pugs could have been classified as non-lethal weapons. Non-lethal weapons, that's right. Uh, now, <laughs> one of the things about uh, submarines is uh, they're underwater, so completely underwater. Uh, tell us about the research of Alan Hugh. Oh, Alan. Oh, oh, yeah. Alan was Alan worked at the damage control trainer, and mm. he was. This is something. If, you, if you're going to, you're in the submarine force. Uh, you need to be trained uh, in certain sort of unpleasant contingencies, like what if um, a hole opens up and is spraying water into the engine room and you, through some sort of a, a pressurized pipe, and, and, or then two or three holes open up. The damage control trainer is, a, is an engine room of a submarine, and you have a bunch of uh, trainees, you have a bunch of uh, future sub, submariners, they don't say submariner; it's submariner, um, and you got to figure out how to how to stop that. You know, it's 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 not it's it's water under pressure coming in through a small hole, and then the hole gets bigger because there's somebody operating that, and you have to 
cut off the water. You've got to like find a way to plug the hole. And there's very specific ways they have to learn to do it. And it's, yeah, sometimes they shut the lights out. There's a, so it's a very, it's a scary thing. You've got water spraying everywhere. It's cold water. They've got it at the temperature it would be. It's cold water. It may go dark. And you and your fellow uh, trainees have to plug these holes and stop these leaks. And the alternative would be to sit there and go, hey, oh, well, and, this, and then the sub sinks and you're sunk too. You also talked to Eric Neighbors, who, who absolutely could not be let himself be called that. Nobody was going to call him Eric. No, poor Eric Neighbors. Everyone called him Jim. So he's now Jim. I mean, his, his, I, I, and I was confused because people would call him Jim, but then his ID tag that he, was, you know, he had on said Eric. And I was like, are you Eric or are you Jim? He goes, look, yeah, if your name is Neighbors... Uh, people are going to call you Jim, and that's, you just have to give in to it. And uh, you know, on his wall in his office, he had an old Jim Neighbors record cover. Uh, what was it called? Kiss Me Goodbye, I think. was <laughs> <laughs> the name of the Jim Neighbors record. But anyway, Jim Neighbors, yeah, he, he was, he's, uh, this was also at the submarine school in Groton, Connecticut. And he was training, he, he was uh, leading, the day I was there, a bunch of, um, future submariners in the, uh, it, they were going through a simulated escape from a sunken submarine, uh, which is, there's a, a submarine has a, it's almost like a airlock on a spaceship, mm-hmm. is that you get in there and the pressure is equalized to the outside, water comes in and you, you, get a, you have to be able to clear your ears and you know, it, it's, a, it's a high stress thing and then the, the, when the, the pressures are equalized, the top opens and now you're free to get out of leave the sub and go into water that may be as much as five or six hundred feet deep and you're wearing you're wearing a suit that gives you an air supply but you're pretty much just heading up on your own through all that water to the surface and 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 then the, the suit becomes a bit uh, like a, a individual life raft but anyway they have to practice getting into the trunk going through the pressurization of the mm-hmm. trunk which trunk which is very uncomfortable and can you know do a number on your ears if so they screen them first but anyway there was a bunch of kids you know, I say kids they were some of them teenagers so they were going through the uh, it's this giant column of water uh, that how deep is it it's not it's not hundreds of feet but it's I think what 37, 37 feet 37 feet, feet. Yeah. so you're at the bottom and you've got a be in the escape trunk while it's pressurized, and then go up. Uh, and and they do some without the suit too, where you and you have to exhale as you go up. Otherwise, as the pressure gets uh, less, the lungs w- would expand. You know, the air expands, oh, and wow. you could you could um, burst components of the lung. You know, air sacs are just whole sections of the lung. So you have to ex- constantly be exhaling that excess air that's being wow. created. How interesting. Yeah. So they shout as they go up. Wow. You know, uh, long ago, as part of the Cub Scouts, we had a, a stay over on the Hornet. We di- I didn't get to go. I, normally, you get to go on the Pompanito, which is a submarine. and But the bunks on the Hornet, I think, are the same thing. Yeah. And if anybody wonders why they don't get any sleep on those things, you just go look at those bunks. I mean, Oh, yeah. I, it's like a, a, a coffin is roomy. And spacious. I'd rather sleep in a coffin than one of those bunks. Yeah, some of the there's photographs from particularly the older subs um, where 
the space was so tight that to roll over, particularly if you're a big guy, mm -hmm. to roll over, you had to get out and tr get in again. You couldn't roll over because the, the, the head space was so that's what it was, it was so like, low. I was yeah. like on the Hornet. I I actually, to be honest, I didn't sleep. I just roamed around the halls all night. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it's uh, and it depends on the kind of sub you're on now. I mean, some I was on a um, SSBN, which is a ballistic missile sub. Mm -hmm. So it's a, you know it's part of a ro the ro roving nuclear arsenal of the United States. It's a you know and, it, and, it, and because it's a nuclear sub, it, it doesn't need to refuel so it, it, it's got a nuclear reactor on board that provides the energy so you can stay down for months as long as the food supply holds out that they, they could be and no, you know that no one knows where they are except for a few individuals so that's the whole idea is to be hidden so that nobody could take you out first oh, well. so um but anyway Yay. that is a big because it has 20 i think it was 24 uh trident missile silos on board it's huge uh, the sleeping so the sleeping space is a little less cramped. You have a you've got a triple bunk bed situation, mm -hmm. and it's you don't have a lot of room for your stuff. Uh, you have very little personal space, but the sleeping space is not quite as extreme as it was in some of the older ones. But uh, sleeping is a big issue on these subs because these people do, after all, have their fingers on the trigger. We want them to be not completely uh, sleep deprived yes, yes. Sleep deprived. yeah yeah um yeah sleep is a, there's a lot of sleep deprivation it's very it's tough to set up a watch schedule that works that gets all the work done and leaves the sailors any personal time at all they were the folks that i talked to they were averaging like four hours sleep mm. it's just there's just too much uh, when the submarine switched from diesel to nuclear there's just a lot of there's a lot more watching that had to be done there's just the, the so the watch schedules became complicated and somebody came up with a this idea that if you made an 18 hour day you'd have more six hour shifts and and you would uh, be able to get more work done but the problem is when you you, you can't mess with circadian rhythm mm. you, 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 when you can't just even though there's no sunlight down there, you know, the thought was, well, we can sort of create any day we want. We can mm -hmm. just create a day that has, you know, it's like that it, it fits this watch schedule better. That enables us to make the most of this. Um, but what happens is it's kind of like sending somebody on a plane to Paris every day. They were introducing jet lag, mm -hmm. not just sleep deprivation, but the circadian rhythms were so messed up. So right, uh, the, the the submarine I was out on, the USS Tennessee, they were attempting to put the watch schedule back to a circadian rhythm that matches human circadian rhythm. They were trying, they were reinstating a 24 hour day mm -hmm. uh, with the hope that the crew would be more alert and less messed up. Less likely to become part of uh, Dr. Strange. <laughs> less likely to create a Dr. Strange love scenario, yes. Uh, you also, we conclude the book with again a return to Mary Roach's home of <laughs> yes of uh, what we can learn from the dead and I, I thought it was really fascinating uh, I mean yeah. and this takes it back to I mean first off the writing is really beautiful it's nice very nice and sweet coda that preserves your sense of humor <laughs> but also uh, takes us back to the scenario um, the two Seagal productions where they're trying to put the needle in the throat and what they learned in from the be back with from the dead was had to do with uh how buff the marines are um yeah there was uh, the 
Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. That just that's the morgue in the mortuary in Dover Air Force Base, where uh, when when someone is killed, their body goes there and is autopsied. Um, um, yeah, there's also a funeral, but I mean, but there's an there's an autopsy done on anyone who's killed in in action. And one of the reasons for that is that they're looking systematically at the emergency care that was delivered to the body and you know to try to save them to the person to try to save them so they leave in place any medical equipment whether it's you know a needle decompression to the to, to the chest or it's uh, a, um, a tourniquet or one of those um, sternal IV things mm -hmm. anyway they're they, they're they Stent. as part of yes um, intraos it's an it, a IV that goes into the bone, into the marrow, oh, rather right. than into the vein. So these, and they're tricky, uh, th tricky things to do. So they're looking as part of the autopsy. They look at the medical equipment that's been left in place on on purpose, on the body to look at. You know, are are is the equipment working right? Is it being placed right? Is there any way? Is there anything we could have done better? Is there anything going on? And and the the case that you just brought up was. Um, when they do an emergency decompression, like if somebody's got a hole in their lung, if they've been sh shot or there's a bomb fragment that's created a hole in the lung, the air that's inhaled starts going outside the lung and then very quickly uh, becomes difficult to inhale, to breathe in, because mm -hmm. there's air building up outside it's pressurizing the lung. lung. Yes, yeah, exactly. So they need to stick a needle down there and there and release that pressure. And what, was, what they were finding out in these... Um, uh, mortality conferences, when they would look systematically at these bodies and the equipment, they were finding out that that's a lot because a lot of a, a lot of soldiers and Marines work out mm -hmm. on bases. Uh, it's one. It's a big pastime there. They're they're so buff. There's so much muscle that the needle was too short to clear the muscle, and it wasn't making its way to where it needed to go. That's fascinating. Yeah, and they realized that, and now they use longer needles. Uh, so they were something they were able to you know make a change. So the the you know the dead. You know, looking at the dead, not just autopsying them and, and seeing, you know, how they died, but was there something we might have done to prevent them from dying? I think that this book is so interesting. It gathers so much fascinating science, and it shows, too, I think that the power of science on a very practical and pragmatic level, and I think that that's really important because we hear so much about science being theories and mm -hmm. not proven. Yeah. I think that seeing science yeah. played out on a practical, pragmatic level is really important. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of, yeah, there's, there's a certain amount of heroics. I mean, heroics is a word you associate with the military, but this is heroics of a different kind, kind of behind the scenes, a sort of quiet, Heroic scientists, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're doing the, the hard work that yeah. is saving lives, and yeah. their lives are already in danger. In yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've been speaking with Mary Roach. Her new book is Grunt. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's always fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.